We will first take questions, some questions which have come in from the worldwide audience, the virtual audience. And then I will ask you to raise your hands. I'll ask you to come forward. There is a chair here and a microphone here. And you speak into the microphone, tell us your name, and ask us your question. Um, now, first, would you kindly read out some question from the internet audience? We had man many questions. Is it audible? Is it on? It's audible, yes. We had many questions on karma, Swamiji. And the first one is from Elizabeth D., who comes from a Roman Catholic background. If we are reborn, do we get exactly the same piece of consciousness in the next life? Let the soul that we have, i.e., the soul that we have right now. All right, Elizabeth. The first thing that we have to understand is, when you say, if we are reborn, do we get the same piece of consciousness that we have right now? Who gets reborn? You, first of all, change this paradigm. You are that consciousness. You don't get a piece of consciousness. It's like asking, do I get a piece of the action when I'm reborn again? <laughs> you are that consciousness. You don't get a piece of consciousness or lose a piece of consciousness. And second, consciousness has no pieces. What you are referring to is the mind. So, in, in the understanding in Indian philosophy, there is this physical body. Here we are, what, we, 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 what you can see and touch here, the physical body. And there is the subtle body within. Mind and intellect and memory, and the, the personality, the little person. That's the subtle body within this physical body. And beyond that is the consciousness that you are. At present, we are not aware of the consciousness as an independent, unchanging entity. What we are aware of is the body and mind, and we have become identified with that. We think, this is who I am. At death, clearly the physical body dies. But Vedanta says, that the subtle body, in fact, every religion will say this, what is called the soul, the subtle body, that does not die with the death of the physical body. That's the one which is supposed to go to heaven or hell or other worlds and then come back again into other lives. So when you are reborn, what are you? The, the consciousness, the pure consciousness, identified with one subtle body. So when that subtle body comes back in a new physical body, you are the same consciousness and the same subtle body which has gone from one body to another body. According to Advaita Vedanta, non-dual Vedanta, the pure consciousness does not go anywhere. It's all pervading. Where will it go? It's the subtle body which travels from place to place, from world to world, body to body, life to life. Yes. Does that an answer the question? Yes. Um, and Ariji asks, if whatever we do is karma, then does whatever we think also come under karma? If so, then if one's thinking is not as good as one's actions, will it be considered as bad karma? I think doing good is good karma, and doing bad is bad karma. Is this the way karma can be defined? You're right, Arijit. Um, thinking thoughts is usually not taken as bad karma. So if I think a bad thought, is, is it bad karma? No. It's like this. What you do consciously, that generates karma. 
So for example, I have, got, uh, I have a desire to eat a sweet, and I've got diabetes. The doctor has told me not to eat a sweet. If I have a desire to eat a sweet, the doctor is not going to criticize me. But if I go ahead and eat that sweet and satisfy that desire, then the doctor says, stop, don't do that. The doctor has no problem with you having a desire to eat. Because you cannot control the desire. The desire comes up from within. But if you act on it, then that's, uh, then that's uh, something the doctor will, will catch you for. Uh, if somebody has a bad thought, uh, even a murderous thought, well, that's not good. But that's not yet bad karma. The police are not going to get you. But if you try to put it into, pra into practice, then the police will be after you. So in the world and in philosophy and religion, people don't actually catch you for what desires bubble up in the mind. What thoughts bubble up in the mind. What you translate into speech and action that you are responsible for. Having said that, there is a point to be understood here. Thoughts may bubble up in the mind, but if I entertain them, then I have some conscious responsibility. What happens is if I entertain those thoughts and keep them going in my mind, I don't take the conscious decision to shunt those thoughts and bring in good thoughts, noble thoughts, better thoughts, positive thoughts, and keep on dwelling on negative thoughts, bad thoughts, harmful thoughts, then what happens is, whether it's bad karma or not, that comes later. What happens is, what we dwell on for a long time, that becomes an ingrained pattern. And what we dwell on consciously in the mind, that inevitably, after some time, will be expressed in speech and action. Then it becomes karma. Dwelling on something consciously, and thinking it's private within me, nobody knows, it's a bad thing, but it's all right. It's secret within me. The thing is, it generates a momentum. And it is, there's a momentum to express it in speech, to talk about it and do it then. It's much more wise that if something you recognize to be negative, something that you feel you should not be entertaining it, immediately replace it with some other positive thought. Divert the mind to something better, something positive. A negative, harmful thought. Replace it with a positive, useful thought. You see, the, treat the mind as not as yourself. Treat the mind as a machine. Why would you want the machine to malfunction? When it is going off track, like you're driving your car, it's going off track, you correct it and bring it back on track. Do that with the mind. Distance yourself from the mind. Don't, don't become identified with the mind. When you get too involved with the doings of the mind, it, then it, you will be forced to speak about it and then it becomes almost unstoppable. It comes out in action. Then it becomes karma. And then it's bad karma. All right. And Shri Kumar asks, if Brahman is residing in me and elsewhere the same, then why is my karma my own? Why am I not inheriting the karma of others, nor am I able to share? All right. This question, it might sound metaphysical and philosophical. Remember, all that we discuss here is not merely metaphysical or philosophical intellectual. It may be philosophical and intellectual. But all these philosophies of India are what, is called, are what are called moksha shastra. They are philosophies of enlightenment. So they are all relevant to us because we are spiritual seekers. So when such questions come, don't dismiss it as, oh, it's theoretical, or it's philosophical. No, it's related to something that's of great use to us in spiritual life. And often I've seen somebody asks a question, 
A third person who is sitting here might be benefited by the answer. Often these questions are our own questions. So here is a question. If Brahman is the one spirit, one reality dwelling on everybody, then why is other, people, other people's karma, why is it not my karma, or my karma is it not other people's karma? Here you, see, you must distinguish between Brahman, the infinite reality, existence, consciousness, bliss, which we just heard the beautiful song, Satyam, Jnana, Manantam, Brahma. From the individual, Brahman associated with one body-mind. That particular soul, that particular subtle body, pure consciousness limited by that subtle body is called an individual, in Sanskrit, Jiva. Pure consciousness limited by one subtle body. And each jiva, we are each of us one jiva. You might say, but you just said we are all Brahman. Truly we are all Brahman. But right now in our experience, in error, in maya, we are individuals. Can you deny that you feel like an individual? You cannot deny it. I feel like an individual. I see all individual beings around me. These are called jivas. Jiva means an individual sentient being. These individual sentient beings have their own karma. The karmas are particular to each soul, each subtle body, which goes from life to life. We accumulate karma, and we experience the results of karma in each life. Because of this soul which goes from life to life, this subtle body. Brahman is completely untouched by karma. You as Brahman right now, as Brahman, if you, if you really realized yourself as Brahman, you would not feel the effect of karma at all. Karma works on the body-mind. Vivekananda, um, I've quoted it often, good, good, bad, bad, and none escape the law. Good karma, the result is happiness, pleasant life. Bad karma, the result is misery, sorrow. And all the mixture of happiness and sorrow we are getting now is a result of our past karma. Good, good, bad, bad, and none escape the law but whosoever wears a form, a form means a body. Whosoever is an individual. Whosoever wears a form, wears the chain too. That those are Vivekananda's words. The chain, the chain that is tied to our feet, the chain is past karma. A load of past karma is on us. And the results are bound to come. We cannot stop it. Then what good is Vedanta? What does Vedanta do for us? How do you get free of that? Next line, Vivekananda says, but far beyond name and form is Atman ever free. Know thou art that, sannyasi bold, say Om Tat Sat Om. Right now, right here, as Brahman, you are entirely free of karma. The moment you know that, you are free of karma. The moment you step back from body and mind, take a step in, take a stand in the spirit, in Brahman, you are free of, of karma. So that's what Vedanta does for us. The last question is from Deepan. Many people do evil actions but receive good things and are prosperous and happy. You may say they may yield results in their future life, but most of us don't remember our past lives or actions. So how will it matter if we get misery in this life for past lives action, but don't realize or know it and cannot relate to it? Right. And he, then he goes on in for more. Yes. How do you prove the concept of life after life, that the soul does not die, keeps taking birth, and the law of karma related to it? How to rationally accept or believe, or is it just a faith philosophy? All right. 
I see three parts in this question. One is, why do good people suffer and we see people who are pretty evil, they're having a good time? <laughs> How do you explain that by karma? And as the question goes on to, questioner goes on to say, we take, we look, look at not only one slice of time, one life, but many lives. The suffering I have now, the good things that happen, by the way, you notice that how we ask, why am I suffering this? We never ask, why am I enjoying this? <laughs> the good things that happen in life, the misery that I get in life, I don't see how I produced it. It comes from past lives. And the karma that I'm doing now, which will have consequences in future lives. Now, a person who is evidently not a good person and still is having a pretty pleasant life, having a good time of it, and you see many such people, that is because of some good karma in the past lives. That's why they're having a good time now. But that good karma is getting exhausted very fast. And the bad karma is accumulating. And one day, disaster strikes these people. Everything collapses around them. And then suffering begins. And that suffering goes on life after life. God is merciful. I remember this uh, philosopher who was a very interesting thinker. He, um, one of my friends, another young monk, he was telling me about this philosopher who is to stay in one of our ashrams in India. So this monk said, this philosopher was a unique thinker. So one day, this monk, my friend, he was standing in the ashram in, in Calcutta, looking down on the street, where this beggar was standing. And the beggar had only one leg. And he was standing with crutches, and he was begging for money. And this philosopher, who could apparently move like a cat, you know, you would hear him coming. Suddenly, this monk hears a whisper in his ear, feeling sorry for him, are we? And the monk sort of jumped out of his skin and he said, yes, I feel, can you hear me? Yes, I feel sorry for this uh, person, the beggar down there, because he doesn't have a leg. And why is it so cruel? And the philosopher said, but, but, ah, but, if only you knew what he had done in his past lives, then he would be rushing down there to cut off his other leg. <laughs> God is merciful. Now, this seems a very harsh thing to say, but, but that's a very different way of looking at it. So, yes, there are consequences. We see sometimes consequences for such people in this life, and the consequences extend into future lives also. Now, you, the second part of the question is, but we don't remember. What good is it if it extends into future lives? Uh, what good is it if... Uh, I did something bad in my past life and I'm suffering now. I don't remember. I don't connect it. Your question seems to be, so we don't learn anything from it. You're just suffering, right? What you are saying is, we don't have memory of past lives. So what good is the law of karma as a moral tool? How do we learn from it? Remember something. You know, it's very interesting. If you notice our lives, we really don't learn from memory. We make a mistake. We understand it's a mistake. We do it again. Every time you see you repeat a quarrel with your mom or dad or wife or husband, you see that you have had this quarrel a hundred times earlier. And every time you realized it was useless. But you go ahead again. Memory does not help us. A person who um, gets into trouble, maybe an addiction, maybe says something nasty or something happens and regrets it. The mechanism of regret, guilt. You see, it's very interesting. I did it and later I wish I had not done it. 
The same conscious agent does it and wishes that he or she had not done it. And yet in many cases we go on to repeat it. It's the story of human life. Many of us, we repeat the same mistake. Memory does not teach. Mostly it does not. You know what teaches? Experience in the form of samskara. Tendencies accumulated in past lives. Every child is born with that. You see children, as they grow up in the same family, they are different from each other. Some people are by nature good-natured. Some are by nature generous. Not because of memory that I was stingy in my past life and I was unhappy. Let me be generous in the present life. Not thinking consciously like that. Just a generous nature. Just a kind nature. Just a cruel nature. Just a jealous nature. What is this nature? Prachina karma sanchaya. Prachina karma. Ancient karma is upon us in the form of our tendencies. You want to know your past lives? It may be scary. There's one way, without getting memories of your past lives, there's one way of knowing your past lives. Look at your tendencies in this life. That reveals something of what we were in our past lives. Generally, this past life regression, there might be something to it, but what makes me suspicious is everybody in the past life was either Cleopatra or... or uh, <laughs> or an emperor, or some tragic figure, or something like that. Nobody was a washerman, nobody was a farmer. <laughs> yeah, there are stories of past lives. Anyway, we'll not go into that. But, so these tendencies we carry from life to life, that's what changes us. And that those tendencies, how do we acquire them? Through suffering, unfortunately. We acquire those tendencies through experience in this life. There's some great desire to enjoy something. Maybe I really love to travel. Okay, so I travel a lot in this life. Next life I'm born, I have no memory of having traveled a lot. But I'm not, I'm not particularly interested in traveling anymore. Some satisfaction has come. Is it only through experience? Is it only through suffering? There is another way. The wise person gets this through practice. Whatever you have practiced consciously in this life, you will get in the results in the next life also. Practice meditation assiduously, not working, next life a great meditator. Practice musician, mediocre musician, next life a great musician. Those things come. Child prodigies, how do you explain that? Music, mathematics, language, polyglots, speaking 20 languages, 30 languages, effortlessly. So, what you practice consciously, that's why conscious spiritual practice never lost. Krishna is asked by Arjuna in the Gita, 6th chapter, suppose I do not get enlightenment in this life, then is it all wasted? All the prayer and meditation and study and good deeds? Krishna says, never. The one who walks on this path of enlightenment, this path of welfare, well-being, of, of um, uh, uh, the, the truly good path, nothing that this person does, he or she, nothing sh is lost. You start from where you left off. If, you, we do not, if I do not get enlightenment in this life, nothing is left. Nothing is lost. Next life, I start off where I left off. I may not remember. What happens? 
Krishna says, at death, this person goes to heaven and has a very nice time of it because a spiritual practitioner generally is a good person. So you have done a lot of good things in life. The result of that you get as a pleasant life in heaven. That's good. Then what happens? That too comes to an end. In Hinduism, there are many heavens. Buddhism, Hinduism, Jainism. There are many heavens, many hells. But all of them come to an end. No eternal. And you come back again to this life for another crack at enlightenment. And when you come back, Krishna says, This person will be swept along helplessly by the force of past practice. You may not remember having meditated. You may not remember having had the company of holy people. You may not re remember having memorized verses and verses of Upanishads, Gita, Bible, whatever. But that force is there and you go ahead in spiritual life. So, my answer to that question is, we do learn lessons. It works through experience and what is called samskara. People change through samskara, not so much through memory. Memory of past lives not really helpful. Somebody asked Swami Vivekananda, uh, I think Sister Christine or Nivedita, can I get memories of my past life? And Swamiji, Swami Vivekananda scolded her, said, Sufficient unto the day the evil thereof. You cannot deal with the problems of this life. You want to invite problems of past lives. What do you think your past life was? It'll be another version of this. Enormous problems. And they come back. Guilt and problems and frustration and suffering. And old age and disease and death. You want that? Once again? The last part of the question was. That uh, how do you account for past lives and future lives and karma, is it all faith or do you account for that? Very simple, I think I'm going on too long for each question. Um, very simple, I'll give you straight answer for that. How do you account for the law of karma? Is it taken on faith? No, it's based on causality. Each cause must have an effect and whatever we see in our lives must have a cause. Why? Because the alternative is meaninglessness. Alternative is meaninglessness, just accidental, there's no cause. So causality, we accept causality in every aspect of life. Science is based on causality. Common sense is based on causality. Everything is based on causality. Why would you not accept causal in a moral sense in, in life uh, as good karma, bad karma? And what about many lives? It is just an extension of the law of karma. Lot of effects we see in this life, we cannot explain it by one life. They must have been past lives. A lot of things happen in this life, we don't see the results. We must have future results. Technically in philosophy, Indian philosophy, it is called Akrita Bhupagama and Kritanasha. Akrita Bhupagama means, the Sanskrit word means, arising of something that has not been caused. I don't do anything, I get the results. If there are no past lives. And Kritanasha means destruction of what has already been set into motion without giving results. So if I do something, good or bad, and I have no more future lives, then what about the results? I did not get what I deserved, good or bad. So these are the two logical faults which will happen if there are no past lives or future lives. Accepting the law of karma. A little bit of faith helps also. <laughs> A question from the audience here? All right, and I'll come here. Tell us your name and then ask the question. Hi, my name is Hindul Sengupta. Uh, my question is, if so much of 
what happens to us in this life is based on our past lives and the tendencies that you spoke of, what is our incentive in building a moral and ethical framework for existence in the world that we live today? Yes. So how do we incentivize, then why should we have a moral and ethical framework in which we operate in society as we know of today? Right. Good question. A moral and ethical framework, what is the point if everything is determined by my past karma, good or bad? You see, karma leads to happiness and misery. The equation is this. Karma is of two kinds, good karma and bad karma in Sanskrit, punya and papa. These are common terms. Everybody in India knows that. Punya means good karma. Good karma is um, produced, punya is produced by what you call dharma. Dharma means righteous karma. Do good things, the result of that is punya, merit. Dharma leads to punya. Good actions lead to merit. And the result of that merit is sukha, happiness, in this life and future lives. Bad karma, doing bad actions, adharma, unrighteous, consciously, knowingly doing bad things. Adharma leads to what is called papa, demerit, sin. And the result of papa is dukkha, suffering. So we get happiness and suffering. Now, nobody can say, um, we all want happiness and we want to avoid suffering. And nobody will ask you, oh, happiness, why do you want happiness? The question itself is silly. The fundamental thing we want in life is happiness. Our definition, our understanding of happiness will differ. Somebody, I remember Sean Carroll in his book, The Big Picture, he's a well-known scientist in Caltech and he writes, uh, he's, an, he's a prominent atheist now. A more gentle face of atheism than, say, Richard Dawkins or Daniel Dennett. But he's a very nice guy. Now, in his book, he writes that, um, um, no, happiness is not really the goal. People say happiness is the goal. But a, a researcher doing research, he wants to discover this quest for knowledge. That's the goal. Not happiness, not a smiley face. But that's just short-sighted thinking. That quest for knowledge, does that make the researcher happy or unhappy? The struggle itself may make him unhappy, make this person, there's a lot of struggle in, in scientific quest, in, in artist in, for, for creativity. It's a lot of struggle that maybe uh, might generate temporary unhappiness. But the deep satisfaction of an artist's life or a scientist's life lies in this quest. So that satisfaction is happiness. Ultimately, there are some people who say that, no, I don't care for my happiness. I do altruistic things. I do things for others, not for myself. So I'm not looking for my own happiness. Well, doing things for others and making others happy, does that make you happy or unhappy? That makes me happy. So ultimately, happiness is the goal and nobody wants misery or unhappiness. If that is so, in that case, it makes sense to do good things and not to do bad things. The moral and ethical framework, the first thing it does is, if you want a happy life, if you don't want to be unhappy, then be ethical, be moral, avoid immorality, avoid what you know to be wrong. It may be difficult, but the equation is clear. Moral action, merit, happiness. Immoral action, demerit, unhappiness. We want happiness, be moral. These bookshelves in, in Barnes and Nobles, you'll see self-help section, uh, filled with books, how to be happy. Seven day course, crash course, this course and that course, and how to be 
uh, happy and have friends and, and so on and so forth. Starting from Dale Carnegie down today, there's so much. And the psychologists have gotten in on the act, happiness hypothesis, and so many books are there. A lot with, filled with a lot of insights. But Indian philosophy has a simple equation. Good karma leads to happiness. Bad karma leads to unhappiness. At least a pleasant life, unpleasant life. So that's one reason for an ethical framework, if you really want peace and happiness in your life. But a deeper reason for an ethical framework is this. The ultimate goal of life, according to Vedanta, is not to have a more pleasant life and less unpleasant life, then die and then again have another pleasant life and then die and then have another pleasant life. No, it is to get out of this whole cycle of limited existence. It is to realize that you are Brahman and that actually gives you this infinite happiness. And not this limited slice by slice happiness we are chasing from life to life. It ends the game of this life. So, um, enlightenment requires an ethical framework. Spirituality requires an ethical framework. A good person, an ethical person, need not be a very spiritual person. Can you be good without being spiritual? Actually, yes. And there are many people who are good. I saw this person who said that, no, goodness is based on God, for, on religion. You can't have goodness without religion. That's also a, a big school of thought. And I somewhat subscribe to that, though many people do not. But anyway, uh, a philosopher put it very beautifully. You cannot have uh, goodness without religion, some kind of religion. And the way he put it was an equation. Good, G-O-O-D, good, minus God, G-O-D, is equal to zero, you see? O-O-D, if you sub subtract the G-O-D, you have only zero left and O left, so O. Good minus God, if you take God out of the good, nothing is left, only zero. <laughs> um, but you can be a good person without being overtly spiritual. But you cannot be a spiritual person without being a, being a good person. So m morality, ethica, ethical life is necessary for spirituality. You hear of all these scandals in different parts where so-called spiritual persons have a suddenly a dramatic fall and it's a scandal and it's all over the papers. What happened? We don't know how spiritual that person was, but certainly not ethical. The scandal is not about, oh, that person was caught not meditating. <laughs> That's not the scandal. He did not achieve samadhi, the highest enlightenment of meditative trance. That's not a scandal. The scandal is um, an ethical failure, a moral failure. So ethical framework necessary for a good life in this world and for spirituality. Question? Those who had questions, please hold on to your questions. I'll come back to you. Now we take a question from the internet audience. Um, and again, three questions on the subject of evil. Um, Elizabeth asks, where does evil come from? Vedanta says there are opposites in Maya. If it comes from the mind only, how is it that sometimes you can feel something is evil? In the Catholic Bible, it often mentions evil spirits. Where do they come from? Good and bad, good and evil. Where is this? Well, first of all, it's in our minds. It's in action. There's good action and bad action. But if you go deeper, it's the intention which really counts. And there is evil intention, malign intention, and good intention. That's in the mind. 
the spirit, Brahman, Atman, is not touched by this. Only thing is, if my mind is clouded by evil action, evil thought, then I'm never going to realize myself as Brahman. I have to transform the evil tendencies of the mind into good tendencies, and then only enlightenment is possible. Now, the question is deeper. Elizabeth's question is, where does evil come from in Vedanta? In contrast, uh, in some of the Abrahamic traditions, you set up a source of evil. God is the source of good, and Satan is the source of evil. There's a separate, purely uh, evil entity called Satan or some other. In, uh, it, it comes from, um, Christianity gets it from Judaism, and Judaism actually gets it from Zoroastrianism, a much more ancient form of dualistic religion, where uh, Zarathustra, he had this intuition that there is an all-good power, a power of light in this world. He called it Ahura Mazda, uh, the uh, god in, in Zoroastrian religion. In India, we know them as Parsis. The Parsis. So Ahura Mazda is the god of light. It is actually God, what you call God in religion. But there's a counterpart, Arhiman. Arhiman is the god of darkness. And there's a perpetual battle between Arhiman and uh, Ahura Mazda for possession of our souls. Now, if that sounds familiar to Christians, it ought to be familiar because the same DNA is there in, uh, in Judaism and Christianity. So this is the idea that there is an actual source of evil somewhere. That's why you have this intuition that something is terribly wrong in this world. And that's creating evil. Whereas in Maya, and we have to suffer for this evil because of our sin. And this sin is not only does not start with us, it traces it all the way back to the first created uh, man, Adam and Eve. The concept of original sin. In Vedanta, we don't recognize sin as fundamental. You, know, you, say, you said that you just talked about papa sin. That's a consequence of bad action, but it's not fundamental. It can be overcome by good action. But what is fundamental, according to Vedanta, is ignorance. Vivekananda in this country, he used shock therapy. He said, sinners, it's a sin to call ye sinners. You are children of immortal bliss. You are Brahman. You are Atman. You are existence consciousness bliss. Then what is the problem? You don't know it. In Vedanta, this not knowing is called ignorance. You don't know what you are. So what happens then? Not knowing my fullness, not knowing my infinitude, this ignorance, the next result, the next product of this ignorance is desire. I am full. I am infinite. I do not know it, but I am haunted by a desire for fullness, for satisfaction, for infinity. We are all haunted by a desire for infinity. I remember when I became a monk, somebody asked me, one of my classmates, why do you want to become a monk? You don't want anything, uh, in the good things that life has to offer. You want to give up everything? I said, on the contrary, I want to become a monk because I want everything. Not just one thing or two things or three things. Not just what you want. You know, um, some money, some uh, success in life, uh, some relationship, little slices of happiness of the world. I want everything. I want everything, alpha to omega, everything, A to Z. I want to be infinite. Vedanta says we are infinite, we do not know it, not knowing it, desire wells up within us. 
Unfortunately, this is the play of Maya. Desire is outward directed. I think I will be complete if I get a college degree from an Ivy League college, from, from Columbia, or those who are from, from NYU, with apologies, NYU. <laughs> I will be complete. You get that? Then I want a job in Wall Street. Then I will be complete. Or I want this relationship. Then I'll be complete. Or I want this promotion. Or I want this car or the new iPhone. Then I will be complete. You don't actually say it out loud, uh, out loud that if I get the iPhone 8, I will be infinite. No. <laughs> you don't say it out loud because it sounds silly if you say it like that. But that's what is going on deep within us. One more thing and one more thing and one more thing and then I'll be happy. We never are. We have not been successful in this quest till now. Till now. All our lives. 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 60 years, 80 years, we've been trying, not successful. Some people say, this is life, there's nothing more to it. That's all that there is, make the best of it. But no, you are avoiding a fact. There is something more to it. There have been people in all religions, in all ages, in all civilizations, who have claimed true, lasting peace. The enlightened people, whether Ramakrishna or Christ or Krishna or Buddha, they have all achieved this. They say it is possible. And it's possible for each one of us. That's the spiritual quest. So the problem is ignorance leading to desire, desire leading to karma. We start working, we set into motion mighty energies without knowing it. And these are the energies which whirl us from birth to death to birth to further lives to the other worlds. This is what is whirling us, the energies we have set in motion. In our own desire for complete, uh, completion. And we will get, come to that completion. You cannot uh, avoid it. It's your birthright. It's who you are. You will get it eventually. So this is the source of evil in Vedanta. This fundamental ignorance. Yes. And then so Shri Kumar asks, if the whole being is a universal Brahman slash God, this also suggests the evil is also part of Brahman. Then how to define the good and the evil? By worshipping the good, am I also ending up worshipping the evil? Okay. Is that uh, one more? And Deepan says, if God exists, why is there more evil than good in the world? All right. Fundamental questions. We all ask them sometimes. What is the Vedantic answer to that? First is a, is a question that if Brahman is everything, then evil, Brahman is also evil. You're, you are deriving it mathematically. So all is Brahman. Is that true? No. But Swami, that's what you've been telling us. No, I've never said that. Mary Hale, Swami Vivekananda's disciple, a young American girl, she writes to Swami Vivekananda in a poem that you have said, you have taught us that all is God. And he wrote back, I have never taught such strange doctrine that all is God. I've never said that. In astonishment, you said it. You even said those very words that I, everything is God. Swami Vivekananda said, that's not what I meant. I have never taught that all is God. What I have taught is this. God only is, all is not. Vedanta, what does Vedanta say? Vedanta really does not say everything is Brahman. It says, Brahma Satyam, Jagat Mithya, Jiva Brahmhevanapara. What does it mean? Brahman alone is real. The only reality is Brahman. 
And this world that we experience is mitya and appearance, and an appearance of Brahman. It's not real in itself. And what about me? Am I real or unreal? You are real, don't worry. Because you are Brahman. You are that existence, consciousness, bliss, which is the only reality. It's said to be a non-dual reality, no second thing. There is nothing apart from it. Now, what appears in this world, this world, people and actions and good and bad and evil. Evil is also part of the world appearance. It's not any part of Brahman. There is no place for evil in Brahman. What about the good? There's no place for good in Brahman also. Good and evil are part of our relative world. Morality is part of our relative world. Is Brahman a good boy? <laughs> or naughty? Doesn't apply. Brahman is neither good nor bad. It's beyond both of them. But if you want to realize yourself as Brahman, you have to go from the bad to the good to transcend both. So I'll come to you. Evil is not part of Brahman. Is that, so that's the answer to the question. Uh, neither good nor evil are part of Brahman because both are appearances in Brahman. So it's like saying the, snake is the rope is mistaken for a snake. It's a poisonous snake. So is the rope poisonous? Rope. The classic example, rope snake. You understand what I'm, where I'm coming from? The very um, common Vedantic ex uh, example. You mistake a rope for a snake. In darkness maybe. You think it's a snake. Then you realize, oh, it's not a snake. It's a rope. But when you saw the snake, it was a poisonous snake which you saw. Now somebody asks you, is the rope poisonous? No, it's not. There's no snake and no poison. It's a rope. So from the point of view of Brahman, there's no world, no evil, no good. There is only one infinite existence, consciousness, place. But the movie of the universe which plays in Brahman, oh, there is good and bad in it. There are tragedies and comedies in it. Okay. Deepan's question was that, oh, if God exists, why is there evil? Eternal question. If God exists, why is there evil and suffering? Uh, in Vedanta, evil and suffering are there in our relative world and they are due to our karma. In Christian theology also, in a different way it is put, God gave us free will and because of our free will we freely exercise choices and that leads to suffering. It's not so different from the, from the idea of karma. But the idea of karma is a much more well worked out with philosophical grounding over many lifetimes. It's a logical con consequence over many lifetimes. So it's not God's fault that there is evil in the world. But this thing is called the question of evil. Every religion has to answer this question. You know why they have to answer the question? Because when you believe in God, God is considered to be omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, and all good. God is supposed to be good, loving, benevolent. Now, if a good, loving God, an all-powerful God, then why is this world, the creation of God, evil? That's a justified question. It's like, you love your children, and you really want that your children should not suffer. But you can't prevent it because you are not omnipotent, you are not God. You can't prevent suffering, you can't prevent your own suffering, you can't prevent your children's suffering. But imagine a, a father or a mother who loves us just as you love your children, but that father or mother is omnipotent, can do whatever he or she wills. 
then why would that father or mother allow her children to suffer, his children to suffer? That's the question of evil. It's a logical problem. And the problem comes up only when you consider God to be good. See, is there any other kind of God? They were more primitive ideas of God. God as power. God as power. And goodness? No. Just power. In ancient Babylon, you know, there is a, this story of Noah's ark. God... Um, saw that the world was evil and he drowned the world but he wanted the world to be started anew and he collected two of each species and told Noah here is the ship build a ship and take them and float on the waters of, dissolution, of, of the flood and then finally you shall repopulate the earth again the story, the usual story why did God uh, do that flood everything? Yeah. Hurricane Harvey, Irma yeah. <laughs> why did God do that? that was a nasty thing to do because the answer is given there whether you accept it not or not there is an answer to it because of justice, God saw that uh, man was evil, was not keeping the commandments. And so he decided to punish. From evil, punishment. That's some kind of logic, though you may not like this idea. It's not some kind of logic. But there is an older version to this story, and that's very interesting. The same story in ancient Babylonian religion, which is gone now. God was there. What kind of God? An all-powerful God. An all-good and loving God. Oh, no, no, no. Just powerful. And then what happened? People made so much noise that it disturbed God's sleep. God was annoyed. That these humans are a noisy lot. Let me drown them. But, he said, they can come back again. And he appointed somebody. I've forgotten the name. They're big, old Babylonian names. Just like Noah, somebody was appointed, and there was a boat, and there were two of each species, and they were, it's a well-known uh, pre-biblical story. You can see the same story, but only one crucial difference. In the Babylonian version, why did God do it? Because he could. And by the way, it was a he. Because he could. Just power. There's no, and they thought it was natural. They, I mean, God is, you don't expect God to be just. God is just powerful. You just have to Keep the old guy in good humor. That's all. He's a crusty old curmudgeon. You have to keep him in good humor. But when the same story comes to Judaism, uh, in, in the uh, Jewish, uh, 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 Jewish Bible, in the Torah, when the story comes, the, among the other stories, you find God, the same crusty old curmudgeon, has acquired a new redeeming quality, justice. And then you come a little further, a God of love. Now the problem arises. In the ancient story, the problem was not there. Question of evil. Why is there suffering in the world? Because God wills it to be so. Why would God do that? Because he can. But if you say God is loving, then the question arises. What are the answers? I will not go into it. I usually recommend a book which I liked very much. The problem of evil in Indian philosophy, in Indian thought. Professor Arthur Herman, he was in the University of Hawaii. He gives 23 answers, not one or two, 23 answers to this question. Why would a love, loving God allow evil in the world? He has not given those answers. He has collected the answers from all the theologies of the world, from different religions of the world, philosophies, even literature of the world. And he's got a list of 23 answers. And you know what? After examining all the answers, the only one he finds acceptable he says, way superior to all the answers. He comes to the last one. 
is this Indian idea of the law of karma, cause and effect. And he has a whole chapter on the defects of the law of karma. Whole chapter. He says, in spite of these defects, no other theory even comes close to it in its explanatory power. Problem of evil in Indian uh, thought, Professor Arthur Herman. All right. There were questions there. I'll come to you one by one. The lady at the back, yes. Please come up here. Yes, you. You. Come up here. Tell us your name and ask the question. Uh, my name is Nabila. Uh, my question is related to we, the fact that we as individuals are born and you know, we will die and we will be reborn, right, at this level. Uh, at the universe level, I understand that the same process also applies, that the universe is created, expands, and is destroyed after, and then recreated. Can you tell us a little bit more about this, and how can we, how, how, what do these worlds could look like, and what is it? All right. N not a small question. The creation and existence destruction of the universe. I'll just answer this in brief. What does Vedantic cosmology say? It's, um, it says there are cycles of creation, existence, and destruction. Creation is not quite the right word. Projection is a more right, a correct word. Srishti is the Sanskrit word. Srishti, sthiti, pralaya. Universe is projected. Worlds come into existence. Life evolves. And the souls which are there, they get bodies and experiences. Civilization comes up and we get lots of experiences and our karma is exhausted, new <laughs> karma is generated. And the universe comes to an end after billions of years. And actually that is the time frame that ancient Indian cosmology uses, billions of years. And the universe comes to an end, that is called pralaya, the dissolution. Projection, existence, dissolution of the universe. And then God alone exists with his power of maya. Brahman with maya exists. Where is the universe? Absorbed back into maya. After an incalculable period of time, it's not even time, it's timeless. Again, time, space, matter and energy are projected. A new universe starts. And all of us who have not got enlightenment, they are all merged in maya. They are projected back into the universe. It's a lot like every day what happens to us when we go to sleep. Universe disappears from us, our bodies disappear from our exp our, my experience, and our minds disappear, even the personality. We go into a darkness, as it were, like a little death. But what happens when you wake up? Again, the world is before us, I have a body, I have mind, I have, I'm the same person. Like that, imagine being thrust back into this universe again for another cycle of existence, until you get enlightenment and the whole game comes to an end for you and you remain as infinite existence, consciousness, bliss. So that's the idea. And it's remarkably s similar to our modern cosmological idea of, uh, I saw this in the, uh, in the um, planetarium here in the museum of natural history, that how the Big Bang and creates the universe and the universe Grow, evolves into nebulae and then stars and planets and, and then life comes up and then again there'll be a, you know, when the universe begins to die the, it collapses back upon itself, one theory, another is a steady state theory and there's a big crunch and then again something like a big bang from a singularity it comes back 
very similar. I mean, I'm not saying the ancient Indians knew this, but the pattern seems very similar. Projection from a, from a mysterious, indescribable state into a dis experienced universe, existence of the universe for a long time, and then collapse back again into that mysterious, indescribable state. Yeah, that's the idea. But what I'm saying here is all these are grand and very nice. Advaita Vedanta says, don't bother. Don't bother. Buddha says, don't bother. Whether this theory or that theory. Even if you know it, so what? Body is getting old, life is passing by, suffering and sorrow comes, and I'm destined for a sure death. The body is going to die very soon. And I go into the darkness knowing not where. Get enlightenment here and now in this life. That is the serious quest. Buddha's, Buddha had 14 great, he had, the, it's called the great silence of the Buddha. He was silent to 14 great questions. Why? Because he did not know? No. Because he said they do not help us. One of his disciples asked him, O Tathagata, do we exist after death or not? After enlightenment, will you, after you, your body drops off, will you be the Tathagata, will you be there or not? Like this he asked a number of questions. So, you know, like, is there a permanent eternal soul? And Buddha says, did I say there was an existence after death? Oh, so there is no existence after death. Did I say there was not? It's confusing. Either there is or there is not. I am confused, O oh Buddha. Why are you confused? Because other teachers, there are some who teach us that there is a existence after death. Some who say there is no existence after death, the materialist would say. So they all tell us something. What do you teach? The Buddha said, suppose somebody is in the, walking in the forest and there's a hunter who shoots an arrow and hits this man by mistake. And he's wounded. They come to help him. And they say, we're going to call a doctor. And he says, wait, doctor, before you treat me, tell me, what was the name of the person who shot the arrow? <laughs> what wood is this arrow made of? What is the chemical composition of uh, maybe the poison which is tipped in the, which is, uh, the arrow has a tip? And things like that. Irrelevant, he asks. The Buddha said, what would you say to such a person? I would say he's foolish. He's going to die before he gets treatment. Why does he need to know all this? And the Buddha says, exactly. What the Tathagata teaches is, there is suffering. There is a cause of suffering. There is an end to suffering. And there is a way out of it. Just day for yesterday, saying, the whole thing is, the purpose of life is God-realization, and there is a science to it. Whom did I quote just now? Yes, because I just did a day for yesterday. You won't believe whom I quoted. You think, is, oh, is it Ramakrishna or Vivekananda or a Buddha? That the purpose of life is God-realization, and there is a science to it. You won't believe who said that, George Harrison. <laughs> In the 1980s, of the Beatles fame, uh, I was just reading a book where he says, he was very influenced by Vedanta. So the whole purpose is enlightenment. Let's pursue that. For example, this whole thing about whether there are past lives and future lives. Past lives and future lives. Is it true or not? Or just one life, as some of Abrahamic theories, uh, uh, theologies would have us believe. 
many lives as Hinduism or Buddhism, the Indian religions would have us believe. Whether this or that, a monk told us very, something very interesting. He says, don't try to establish the theory of reincarnation, life after death, uh, the cycle of life and death. Don't try to establish it or prove it. Try to get out of it. <laughs> one of our monks was debating this in, in a, one of our Himalayan ashrams with the other monks. You know, these are the arguments in favor of many lives. These are the arguments that, which are against uh, reincarnation and so on. After some time, the other monks got tired of it. They wouldn't listen. So he went outside with his debate. And there was a great non-dualist teacher, another monk living in an ashram close by. So our monk, that Swami himself told me, I went to this teacher and I said, look, I, am, I have got some questions about this whole idea, Hindu idea, our idea of um, reincarnation, many lives. These are the arguments, you see in, in Hindi or Sanskrit, it is called Punar Janma, next life. Literally it means again life. Puna means again life. So repeated births. The moment he said this, that teacher, I'll tell you in Hindi first, it's very direct in Hindi, and I'll translate. He said to our Swami, Jab janma hi nahi to punar janma kahe ka mahatma ji, aap padhiye. <laughs> it means, my dear monk, when there is no birth, where is their question of rebirth? Read Mandukya Upanishad. What does Advaita Vedanta teach? You say, oh, it teaches that we have had many lives and we are going through many lives and suffering and we need to come out of this, we need to come out of this cycle of birth and death. That's what Advaita Vedanta teaches. That's kindergarten stuff. You know what Advaita really teaches? I'll give you the undiluted truth. I'll give you the undiluted truth. Um, Advaita Vedanta teaches you there are no past lives and future lives. There never was. Brahman alone is true, the world is in appearance. Where are past lives and future lives? In the world, in Maya, in appearance. The movie is not true, the screen is true. Brahman alone is true. In that you see this, this presentation, this dream we call a life. There never was a past life. There never is a present life. There never will be a future life. That's what Vedanta tells you. You are, you were, you are, and you always will be Brahman. When a person becomes enlightened, what do you think happens? The generally, when we hear Vedanta, you think that, oh, we are being told, when you become enlightened, you, you feel, I had many past lives. This is my last life. And now I am free of maya, I am free of ignorance. No more will there be life. It's a beautiful thing, you know, in the, um, the song of the Buddha, Edwin Arnold translates that. What's the beautiful, that, that book? Um, Edwin Arnold's translation? The Light of Asia. There, Buddha says, after enlightenment, that gone are the rafters of the, of the house of delusion you built, O maya, he says. I have come upon enlightenment. I am finally awake. No more shall you delude me. No more is birth for me, no, nor death. So that sounds so beautiful and very poetic. But that's just for our understanding. Advaita Vedanta says, you know actually what an enlightened person will, will realize when the point of enlightenment he or she realizes? 
Not that I had many lives. Now this is my last life. I am free afterwards. I remain as infinity afterwards. No. The person realizes, I never was bound. I have always been Brahman. Never will be bound. The ultimate truth in Mandukya Karika, it is written, Mandukya Karika, it's written that the ultimate truth, one of the highest texts of non-dualism. The ultimate truth is, there is nobody who is bound. There is nobody who is seeking freedom. There is nobody who finds freedom. That one non-dual truth alone remains. It has, is and always will remain. Even has, is and always remain is using language of time. So that's the... Uh, so that's what we are looking for. All right. Now, a question from the internet audience. Yes. I'll come to you next. So this is the email sent from Vikas on behalf of a team of devotees. A team of devotees? Right. Sri yeah. Ramakrishna states that the world is not Maya Veda. Brahman is qualified with Jiva and Jagat Tattva Triya. He does not believe in the world as Jagat as per the Shankara Advaita. In fact, this portion is not in the English Gospel but found in the Bengali Gospel. Why was it deleted in the English Gospel by Swami Nikhilananda? Why are your teachings more Shankara Advaita? <laughs> Why are Ramanuj and Madhva Vedanta commentaries totally neglected? Why is so much importance given to Shankara Advaita when Ramanuj Advaita is more prominent in the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna? Sri Ramakrishna clearly says that he is not Maya Vadi. Please clarify for us. All right. <laughs> we have a team of annoyed devotees <laughs> who are saying too much non-dualism. All right. But this, this sets the stage for a nice um, discussion. Let me give you a little background to this question. Vedanta. We are sitting in the Vedanta society. What is it? It's the teachings of the Upanishads. The Upanishads are the fundamental text of Vedanta. Another text of Vedanta is called the Brahma Sutra. And the third text of the Vedanta, fundamental text of Vedanta is called the Bhagavad Gita. Right? Please sit. So the Upanishads, Brahma Sutra, Bhagavad Gita, these three together are called the triple canon, not the canon which you can shoot cannonballs out of. C-A-N-O-N, the fundamental texts of Vedanta. Prasthanatraya in Sanskrit, the, the triple foundation of Vedanta, foundational texts. Now, of these three, the second one, Brahma Sutras, it's a collection of, say, about 555 aphorisms. Depending on which school you follow, it's 555 or a little different. 555 aphorisms, short cryptic sayings. And they are philosophical discussions of the issues which, which are raised in the Upanishads. So these Brahma Sutras are the foundation, are the philosophical foundation of Vedanta. The real root of Vedanta is Upanishads. But philosophically speaking, Vedanta depends on the Brahma Sutras. And these Brahma Sutras were written by Vyasa. Now, there are many schools of Vedanta depending on the interpretation of the Brahma Sutras. Depending on the interpretation of the Brahma Sutras, you have different schools of Vedanta. 
Shankaracharya, 1400 years ago, wrote his commentary on the Brahma Sutra called the Brahma Sutra Bhashya, Shari Rakam Imam Sabhashya. And that became the philosophical foundation of the school of Vedanta called Advaita Vedanta, which we are being accused of dwelling on too much. Non-dual Vedanta, which I talk about. Non-dual Vedanta. But it's true. It's not the only school of Vedanta. By, very far from it. About a thousand years ago, Ramanujacharya, um, in what is now the present state of Tamil Nadu, he commented on the same Brahma Sutras and wrote a different uh, commentary called the Sri Bhashya. And his commentary became the foundational, philosophical foundation of the school of Vedanta known as Vishishtadvaita, qualified monism or qualified non-dualism. 200 years after him, Madhvacharya, in what is now the state of Karnataka, Udupi, there's a place now. He wrote his own commentary called the Purna Pragya Bhashya on the same Brahma Sutras, giving rise to the Dvaita Vedanta, the dualistic school of Vedanta. Look at this, non-dualistic school, qualified non-dualism, um, uh, non dualism, Advaita, Vishishtadvaita, Dvaita, and there are major differences in these schools. They all talk about Brahman, but in different ways. For example, a central difference is, Shankara says, you are Brahman. Really, if you know yourself, you are Brahman. Ramanuja says in Vishishtadvaita, you are not Brahman, you are a part of Brahman. This whole universe is a unity, not an identity. It's a unity composed of parts. Just as your hands and feet are parts of you, but they are not the whole of you. Similarly, we are all parts of God. But you are not identical with God. And it's like a wave and an ocean. The wave is not the ocean. It's a part of the ocean. And Dvaita Vedanta says, you are not even part of God, let alone being, being one with God. God is different. Brahman is different. You are different. You are an individual, destined to remain an individual. And God is the ruler of this universe. And you are the subjects. It's a very dualistic form of religion. I mean, when you come to it from other world religions, you will find the dualistic Vedanta is, a, is easy to understand. That's mo mostly what you would find other religions are saying. The, non -dual, the qualified monism is a step higher. And Advaita Vedanta is another step higher. Now, and there are other schools. There is Vallabhacharya's Shuddha Advaita, Nimbarka Acharya's Dvaita Advaita, you know, the ISKCON, the, the Hare Krishna monks, just today somebody asked me. Oh, yes, today, in Central Park. Are you a Hare Krishna? <laughs> we have to say, no, I am a Ramakrishna. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, there are, the, the fundamentals are all rooted in Vedanta. That won't work, Bill, you have to switch it off, he's sitting on it. <laughs> you have to switch it off. Yes. Uh, so, the Hare Krishna monks, the, uh, the Society for Krishna Consciousness, they belong to a school of Vaishnavism called Gaudiya Vaishnavism, Bengal Vaishnavism, and their core philosophy is also Vedanta, a, a school known as Achintya Bheda Ved, inconceivable identity indifference. 
So all these schools, they're all schools of Vedanta, and they have major followings. They have huge and major followings. For example, large numbers of people in the south of India, in, in Tamil Nadu, the Sri Vaishnavas, they're all followers of Ramanuja, not non-dualistic Vedanta, not Shankara. Large numbers of people in, the, in Karnataka, they're followers of Madhva. In fact, until Chaitanya school of Bengal Vaishnavism develops its own Vedanta philosophy, they were all followers of Madhva, the dualistic Vedanta of, uh, in, uh, in Karnataka, and so on. And in fact, directly followers of uh, Shankara might be fewer in number than all the others. <coughs> so here is this question, why are you concentrating only on Shankara, not on others? Well, the answer is this. <coughs> we, the Ramakrishna order of India, the Vedanta societies, our core philosophy is Shankara's Advaita Vedanta. You can say, says who? Because if you look at Ramakrishna, he speaks about everything. And not just Vedanta, he speaks about Tantra, he speaks about Vaishnavism, um, Shaktaism and, and Vaishnavism, he speaks about Sikhism and, and Christianity and Islam, uh, Buddhism. So he speaks about so many things, not just Vedanta. And why only Advaita Vedanta, non-dual Vedanta? Because of this. Our emphasis on non-dual Vedanta comes from Swami Vivekananda. If you look at Swami Vivekananda, the things he taught in this country and in India, the central trust is non-dual Vedanta. Second, our sannyasa, we are monks. And if you actually, you know, in my name is Swami Sarvapriyananda, some of you might know, but do you know that that's not my whole name? I don't use the whole name. The, no, the full form is Sarvapriyananda Puri. Puri, that title shows which denomination of monastic orders I belong to. I belong to a denomination called the Puri Sampradaya. And that is part of a tenfold denomination started by Shankaracharya. Ten orders of monks, among whom Puri is one. There is um, Bharati and Saraswati and uh, Giri and so on. There are ten orders, and we are one of those orders, started by Shankaracharya, the non-dualist orders of monks. So that's another thing. Our sannyasa, the, the process we go through for monasticism, the vows of monasticism, are, they make sense only in non-dualism. The mantras which we take at the time of sannyasa are completely the mantras used in Shankara's orders. There are monastic orders for the dualistic Vedanta. That's different. There are monastic orders for non-dualistic Vedanta. They are different orders. But we are not part of that. But, but... Um, we are in a liberal sense. We are not strict non-dualistics saying that Vedanta is only non-dualism and the others are wrong. We don't say that. We say that we, f we accept the insights, the beauty, the power that is there in Ramanuja's Vishishtadvaita, in Madhva's Dvaita Vedanta, in Chaitanya's ecstatic love of God. We accept all of that wholeheartedly and we know there are extremely valuable inputs they are extremely valuable insights into spiritual life in all these paths. They are beautiful paths. They are very rich. I'm, I'm only, I can only be sorry that I have not had the time to study those other commentaries. I have read a little bit, not that I have not read. I have read some of the commentaries of Ramanujacharya, some of the commentaries of uh, Madhvacharya. And I'll have you know that our the, uh, order has produced scholars who have translated not only the commentaries of Shankaracharya, famously, commentaries of Shankaracharya, 
But commentary of Vireshwananduji, he translated to Sri Bhashya, the commentary of Ramanujacharya into English. It's available. Um, the, the Gita commentary of Ramanujacharya in the, no, the qualified non-dualistic, qualified monistic philosophy, written by Ramanujacharya, the commentary on the Gita, has been translated and published from our order. So our order, we have monks who have seriously studied the Vishishta Dvaita, Dvaita, and different schools of Vedanta. But primarily Advaita because our central philosophy is Advaita. Um, in one of our ashrams in Mayavati, in the Himalayas, uh, Swami Vivekananda established it, and he said no ritualistic worship will be there. Uh, when Vivekananda himself went there, he found a picture of Ramakrishna, and it was being worshipped. And his, his reaction was, what the old man has entered this place to? <laughs> Remove the picture. Buddha Taikhani Duke said, Remove the picture. Now, one of the monks was very hurt by this. So he wrote to Holy Mother, to Masharada, who was in Jairambati at that time, saying that uh, we were worshipping a picture of the Master, uh, like you do in other ashrams. And Vivekananda asked us to remove this picture. So, was, was it wrong to worship the Master? And he fully expected her support. But you know what she wrote back? She wrote back, she dictated the letter. My child, your guru was Brahman. Literally, your guru was Advaita. Your guru was non-dual. Non -dual. She did not say your guru was a non-dualist. She said your guru was non-dual. That means he is Brahman. Ah. And then she says, I can say with great certainty that you are all non-dualists. Tomra shavai advaitavadi. I mean, nishchit bhave bolte pari, tomra shavai advaitu. You are all non-dualists. Therefore, what Vivekananda has done is right for that place. Vivekananda set up all this range. You can have dualistic worship, but the background philosophy is always non-dual. When you actually hear the mantras of the worship, yeah, that reality which is within, I worship thee in this form externally. It's non-dualistic. Even Durga Puja, if you see the mantras, non-dualistic actually. There's a background of non-dualism behind it. Another point here. I just said Advaita is the highest, next Vishishta Advaita, Dvaita next. Why did I say that? Would a dualist accept it? The dualism is a rung in the ladder, next rung is qualified non-dualism, and the highest is non-dualism. Would a dualist accept it? Never. Never ever in a thousand years. And literally I mean that they have not accepted it in a thousand years, literally. <laughs> so, <laughs> so why do I say, why do I give this ladder analogy, that dualism, qualified monism, then non-dualism, because Vivekananda has used it. Yes. I'm getting signals that the food is ready, yes. Sri Ramakrishna, as he pointed out, has said, Advaita is the final stage. So Vivekananda gives this ladder idea, first this and then this, but, but. Ramakrishna also in some places has been quite indifferent to it. He does not say you have to go through this first or that first. He says, take up any one of them, follow it carefully, and you will get it. Swami Bhuteshananda, when this question was put to him, I remember this, he was very humorous. He said, why are you, he himself says, so why are you privileging Advaita above others? And the monk who was questioning him said, well, Swami Vivekananda has said the, the bottom of the ladder is dualism, then you go from dualism, you climb higher to qualified monism, then to non-dualism. The ladder, you know, one, two, three. And Bhuteshananda's reply was, 
inimitable humor and insight, you know. He just said, the ladder can also be reversed. <laughs> you can change it. Then non-dualism becomes the bottom. Then you go from the qualified monism and then to dualism. And actually, if you go to Gaudiya Vaishnavism, if you ask them about non-dualism and dualism, they will say, non-dualism is, is at best what they call Mayavada. So non-dualism is at best a very superficial and external understanding of reality. Um, as you go deeper, if you advance in spiritual life, ultimately you will end up with the personality of God. You will end up with Krishna. And what is non-dualism? These non-dualists who keep talking about infinite consciousness, they just sense the light emanating from Krishna's body and then they fall unconscious. <laughs> if they would only go deeper, they would find Krishna. <laughs> so, so from their point of view, so there are many very interesting things. Those who... Um, um, love Krishna after death they will attain to you know, the, the company of Krishna in the presence of God he will always stay there and sing the praises of Krishna and all that those who love Krishna and those who hate Krishna and are enemies of Krishna they will attain non-dual realization afterward <laughs> <laughs> so such funny things are said you can reverse the ladder and they actually say that, that uh, your non-duality is just child's play. You come further. So we'll leave that at that point. Uh, one final point I wanted to make was um, a monk wrote a letter to, to so Sri Ramakrishna. The question was Sri Ramakrishna, gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, it stresses Vishishtadvaita, qualified monism. The, the complaint is you find more bhakti there, less of non-dualism. So why are you stressing non-dualism so much? In fact, I remember a great scholar of qualified monism, Vishishtadvaita, who came to Belurmat to teach us qualified monism, uh, Lakshmi Tathacharya. He had studied Vedanta for 40 years. It's called Ubhaya Vedanta, Tamil Vedanta and Sanskrit Vedanta. For 40 years he studied to master it. So he came to teach us. He speaks only in Sanskrit. And he gave us beautiful classes on qualified monism, Vishishtadvaita, not non-dualism. And he said to us, I'm translating from Sanskrit. The Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna. I love that book. It's so clearly a book of qualified monism, Vishishtadvaita. I read it and I say, I see only qualified monism there. And that was the uniqueness of Ramakrishna. Whoever came to him found his or her own ideal in Ramakrishna. Um, but yes, there's a lot of qualified monism in, um, in Ramakrishna, in the, in the Gospel of Ramakrishna. I'll end with this. A monk wrote a letter to Swami Turiyananda. What would you say was the philosophy of Sri Ramakrishna? Advaita, non-dualism. Vishishtadvaita, qualified monism. Or Dvaita, uh, dualism. What is the philosophy of Sri Ramakrishna? You are a disciple of Sri Ramakrishna. The answer is worth reading. Several pages towards the end of this book. The treasures for spiritual seekers, the letters of Swami Turiyananda, letters of Swami Turiyananda, towards the end, I think almost, maybe the last letter, or the last but one, it's a long letter. Swami Turiyananda writes, describing non-dualism, qualified monism, dualism, Sri Ramakrishna's teachings, and then finally writes, if you push me to a, into a corner, and you say, no, tell us straight, what was Sri Ramakrishna's philosophy? Dualism, non-dualism, qualified monism. Which school of Vedanta did he subscribe to? His answer is in instructive. His answer is, 
Sri Ramakrishna's philosophy was, to put it in one phrase, realize God by whatever means possible. By whatsoever means possible. Dualism, non-dualism, qualified monism, whatever means possible, become enlightened. In Bengali, Josho kore Bhagavan lab karo. This is, this is the this is a, um, phrase in Bengali, which means realize God by whatsoever means possible. Very Buddha-like there. All right. Time for Prasad. I'll remind you once again of Durga Puja on Thursday and uh, on Sunday. Thursday at 8 o'clock and Sunday do come and join in the festivities. I wish you everybody, all of you, a very happy Durga Puja. <coughs> I pray to Thakur, Ma and Swamiji, pray to the Divine Mother Durga to bless all of us. May our lives be peaceful, joyful. May our lives be perfumed with spirituality. And may we all move towards that light, that ultimate consummation of human life in this very life itself. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu